Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another one of our weekly podcasts. My name is Richard. On behalf of Journey Community Church in Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Last week, we came to a close on our study through the book of Jude with Pastor Chris. This week, we're going to begin a new study through the Bible as we start a Christian's Guide to Surviving a Dying Culture. Now, with all that said and done, let's listen in on this week's study with Pastor Chris. So I said this is one of the most important sermons I think I have ever preached, and I really do believe it. We're going to spend the month of December going through a little mini-series called The Christian's Guide to Surviving a Dying Culture. The Christian's Survival Guide to Surviving a Dying Culture. And so this morning, we're going to look at what a dying culture looks like. We're going to look at how a culture dies, and we're going to look at exactly the symptoms in which a dying culture exhibits. And then I want want us to compare it to the United States of America, primarily the systems and the cultures in which we know today. And we are probably going to conclude with the United States is, in fact, a dying nation. And so turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're going to take verses 18 through 32. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And we're going to, this week, look at a dying culture, and then the following weeks, a remedy, or how we can thrive even when the culture around us is in decay and gentrifying. So this week, we're going to look at what a dying nation, culture, civilization, or people group looks like. And when you think of history, the entire world is about civilizations rising and civilizations what? Falling. Think of it. You had the people at the Tower of Babel building a tower so they can be and build it up to God. Then you had the the great sweeping uh, pyramids of that massive empire of the Egyptians. And you had the Babylonians and the Medo-Persians and these massive civilizations that really made their mark and left their mark on history. Then we go to the Grecians. And do you remember who the leader of, of that great a revival of Hellenistic thinking and way of life. You know that guy, Alexander the Great, that conquered the known world? You have the Greeks and their civilization in whom affected and really um, molded together our democracy from an empire from over 2,000 years ago. And then Greece and that beautiful civilization fell. And then who replaced them? The Romans, right? That empire that lasted nearly a millennia. The, the, the Roman empire that, that really influenced the known world today. And even Rome fell. Then you had an empire like the Mongolians. At its height, Genghis Khan owned, possessed 16% of the world's entire land. And then you had the great British empire. One out of every five people at the, at, in the world at the height of the British Empire was subject to the crown. There's that old saying that the sun never sets on the British Empire, on that Union Jack. They owned it all. And then 
they fall, and then the next superpower, the United States, rises. At our peak, we own half the world's money. One country out of 197 owned half of the world's power and resources. We were the mega power of civilization. And now we're starting to see the fall. The Egyptians are relegated to ruins. The English are relegated to a little island and possibly losing Scotland. Mongolia, they're primarily a nomadic people. Their country is nothing more than sheep, horses, and a a bunch of beautiful rocks and scenery. These massive empires grew, and these massive empires fell. The question is why and how and, and the reasons why and the what's and the who's and the why's. God tells you and I through his scripture this morning why massive superpowers fall and what we can learn from that. So turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 1, and we're taking verses what? There you go. So let's start at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So let's look at the when of God's judgment or God's wrath on a dying culture. When does God's judgment and wrath begin? What does it say there, right there in verse 8? Okay, so the wrath of God is revealed. Is that past tense? Is that present tense? Or is that future tense? So is revealed is a present tense. Think about that. God's wrath and judgment on a nation and on a people or people group is currently underway. Now, when you think of judgment, I think of judgment. Maybe you don't. I do. I think of hailstones or brimstones and fire like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? God supernaturally saying, I'm going to wipe these people out. I think of I think of Korah being swallowed up by the world. I think of God's flood that killed the entire human race minus eight. I think of these things, and those are judgments of God. But really, the judgment of God on a dying culture is something completely different. Look at verses 24, 26, and 28, you Bible students. Tell me what phrase you see over and over again in verse 24, in verse 26, and in verse 28. God gave them over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. The judgment in verse 18 that happens to a person or a people group that just ultimately deny God is God reveals his wrath and his judgment through abandoning them. It's the judgment of abandonment. That's the judgment. God says, okay, you want to revolt, while out, you want to uh, reject me, you want to refuse me, you want to belittle me, I will do the same to you. And so God is currently showing his judgment upon a people or people group through abandonment, through abandonment. 
This is, this is really just some crazy, crazy, crazy stuff. So the when is now and the how. It's being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what God is saying is, if you want to be judged by having me removed from your life, then I will judge you by letting go, by completely just letting go. You see, it's God's grace that restrains evil. It's God's grace that restrains evil. And if people don't want God or that restraining factor, then God will let them do their own thing. Now, why is that so bad? Because the Bible speaks of the human condition. Now, when you ask a bunch of people, what do you think about man? They will probably say something along the lines of, man is basically good. I'm a good person. I never did. And then they fill in a blank and that justifies them being a good person. I'm a good person because, or they're a good people or whatever the case may be. This is God's diagnosis of the human condition. In Romans chapter 3, starting at verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged both Jews and Greeks. So that's all races. You have the Jews and everybody else. Everybody is under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. All have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known, for there is no fear of God before their eyes. That is the human condition. And I've said this before. If you want me to prove it to you, every parent knows you don't have to teach your kid to steal. You don't have to teach your kid to be disobedient. You don't have to teach your kid to punch their siblings. They naturally do it. You have to try to teach them to not do these things because the natural inclination of a human being is to break bad, is to break away from God and God's precepts and God's commandments just by nature. Coming at it from another perspective, if man was basically good, then why is it that all major cities, crime rates and everything else goes through the roof? You know, people say, well, it's because it's a densely populated area. But if man was good, then cities and densely populated areas would be good too. But the fact that they're not is a testament to human nature. If we can cheat, steal, get away, we will. And human depravity or this doctrine is not saying that every human being is as bad as they could be. Not every human being takes their depravity to its greatest extent, like a, a Hitler or a Stalin, but that every human being has the capacity to be evil, depraved, and wicked. And if their hearts were left to their own devices, they would always be against God because God says, no one seeks after me. 
No one seeks after me. So you have a culture in which God is judging and people are then saying, no, no, no. So how does God restrain evil? If if God has called us to come live to his commands and, and be right with him, but our own natural tendency is to stray away, then God on earth creates institutions to rein us in, to pull us back, to stay on the path, to stay on the course from our own sinful destruction. So God has given us four things, and I've discussed them before. The first one is the conscience. God has put on the heart of every human being his law, his moral law, and has given inside the mind of every human being the conscience to choose right and to choose wrong. And so God has given that to every single human being on planet Earth. It says in Romans 2, verse 14 and 15, For when Gentiles, non-believers, who do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or defending them. God has written his law on every human heart and the conscience exercises it. Why is it that despite of skin color, despite of religion, despite of language, despite of cultural identities, despite the continent you grow up on, why is it that mass murder is wrong in Bolivia, just like it's wrong in Russia, just like it's wrong in Uganda, just like it's wrong in uh, Montreal? Why all over the world? is evil, evil, and good, good, despite everything else in that human being's life is different than their neighbor across the country or across the continent or across the globe. Because God has written in the person's heart right and wrong and the conscience exercises. And it starts when you're a young kid and it stays with you. So God can restrain evil. When I was five years old, I stole $20 from my mom's purse. I did that because uh, the ice cream man was coming. And I saw, usually I would just take change. And that I, that felt better. But I saw my mom's 20 and I took it. And as soon as my hand left that purse, boom, guilt and shame hit me. Five-year-old little boy. And I felt, this is wrong. I, sh- I know I should not do this. I did it. And after the sugar high came down and, and I fed all the neighbors from the ice cream truck, then I realized I did wrong. Five-year-old, the conscience exercised through God's moral law. So he uses the conscience to pull people back, even if they're not believers. The second thing God uses is the family unit. God gave the family two leaders, the husband and the wife. And they are to teach their kids God's word. They are to discipline their kids. The Bible says, spare the rod and you spoil the child. Now, it's not spoil like, oh, they get a PS5 and an Xbox and they get this and they get that and they're just so... No, it means rotten eggs. It means if you do not discipline your children, they will grow up rotten. 
Children don't, don't get disciplined and they're going to grow up a mess. And so God says, you teach them God's word. You live by God's word. You reason with your children. You love your children. You talk to your children and you discipline your children. Why? Because that is a moral restraint. It curbs evil. When every, all parents are doing that, then the society as a whole can operate. And then in return, what do par- what are kids commanded to do? What does the commandment say? One of the ten. Honor your mother and father. The family unit was called to restrain evil. The third is the government. Romans chapter 13, verse 1 and 2. Romans 13, 1 and 2. Every person is to be in subjection to the, to their governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. God gave the world the institution of government to protect its citizens from foreign invasion and to curb evil. If I know premeditated murder is going to give me 25 to life and in some other states the death penalty, it might cause me to think and say, you know what, maybe I shouldn't do that thing. You see, the government and law enforcement is a deterrent of evil, just like the conscience and the family unit. The last deterrent of evil is the church. It's God's last institution on earth to deter evil from the world. And so preachers are called to preach righteousness, preach repentance, preach truth, preach justice, to confront sin. The spirit within the church and the spirit of God within the preaching of the gospel uh, convicts the church of sin, judgment, and righteousness. The church is there to proclaim truth. And to, like uh, John the Baptist say, judgment is coming. The axe is laid at the root. Repent. Repent. If you go to the south today, you will drive through counties that are called dry counties, meaning there's no alcohol legally sold in those counties. And you ask yourself, why is that? The next county has it. It's because the church's influence in that county is so strong, it has deterred evil. And the church was established to restrain evil. That's why Jesus says, go and make disciples, baptize them, and then do what? Teach them to obey all things I have commanded. In obedience, there's restraint from evil. So the conscience, the family, the government, and the church, God put on this earth to hold people back from their own depravity. When God gives up and he says, God gave them over, God gave them over, God gave them over, God's restraining grace, he takes his hand off. And those institutions for restraining evil become weaker and weaker and weaker. So what does a dying culture look like just from a screenshot point of view? It's a culture whose morality and conscience has been absolutely seared because of immorality. Everybody on both sides have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Republicans and Democrats both are under condemnation. 
the morality of a person's conscience, the, the effectiveness of a person's conscience has been so seared that that culture no longer sees something and they're appalled by it. I live in San Bernardino. I call it the walking dead. Sometimes I drive around and I'll see a man or a woman completely naked, cracked out on the, out on their mind, walking around in the streets, doing all kinds of craziness. And at first I used to be like, what in the world? Now I'm just like, wow, that's crazy. And I just keep, cause it's just normal. We've been absolutely desensitized. We've been desensitized completely. And that's because our moral conscience has been strained because our culture is immoral. What does a, a breakdown of a culture look like? Well, to the family breaks down. Divorce is rampant. Fathers don't stay in homes. Three out of every four in a, the black community will grow up without a dad. 90% of people that grow up without a dad end up in prison. Or I'm sorry, the people in prison, 90% of them come from fatherless homes. So you see when morality is broken and the conscience is broken, the conscience is seared, the family unit, the parents aren't there. They're no longer teaching their kids to grow up in the way of the Lord. They're no longer disciplining their kids so that they wouldn't grow up to be rotten or spoiled. And get this, parents aren't even allowed to discipline their kids many times for fear that they might be taken away from child protective services. You see how a culture attacks every single restraining effort of God to try to pull them away from his glory. They attack everything. And so the parent can't parent, the parent doesn't even stay around, and the family unit is broken. And so what do you have at the very end? Well, verse 30 says, children will be disobedient to their parents. When you see God saying, okay, that's enough, you will see the breakdown of a, of a society completely. It starts with the conscience, the breakdown of the family. Then another breakdown is you will see a government who becomes overtly corrupt and citizens who become overtly aggressive towards the government. So you might have programs or you might have uh, protests that might loot, might burn, might set things on fire and might chant defund the police because the uh, instrument in which God restrains evil is law enforcement. When you have a society that will not be restrained, they will ultimately shun or uh, break down law enforcement and defund the police. Lastly, you will have a society whose church has little to no effect because people have crept in unaware and they've propagated the world's uh, principles and ideals. And so the church becomes prosperity teaching. The church becomes the place where you can learn how to be a, a good uh, finances. The church comes and, and for most churches, their, their whole ministry revolves around marriage or, or revolves around all kinds of crazy things, majoring in the minors and absolutely removing sin, judgment, righteousness, eternal life, and the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you have a culture who's left with very little restraint on evil. That is a dying culture. And that is what's happening in America now. And who is behind all this? It is the men and women who, verse 18, suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Suppress the truth in unrighteousness. The, the Greek word suppress is, is a picture of somebody who sails a boat 
or rows a boat directly into a storm. It means they're going against the current. It means they're going headlong into the wind. They're fighting the flow. People who suppress the truth and unrighteousness are standing with their feet like this, resisting God actively and purposefully. So what happens to a culture when you reject the author of life, the author of light, and the author of love? You have a culture that is no longer vibrant, who has become darkened through immorality, and you have a culture who is unloving at its very heart. Welcome to America. Verse 19 through 23 is the symptoms of a dying culture. First, God reveals. We might think God is ungracious, God is unkind. How can a God of love do sort of things like this? Check it. Check verse 19 and uh, verse 20. God reveals himself to people. He first gives revelation to a people or people group because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So God's wrath is being revealed Any thinking person would say, is God righteous? Is he just? What's going on? Paul says, absolutely, because people aren't left in the dark. There are two things that testify God exists to every man, woman, and child, even if they don't have this book or never heard of the name Jesus. They know that God exists. Verse 19, because of the conscience. Verse 20, because of creation. Verse 19, the conscience. The conscience cannot be explained by science. And this is something that has driven the scientific community mad. They cannot figure out why a human being has a moral compass. And here's the incredible thing. God says this moral compass testifies to all people that I exist, and it's true. Have you anybody heard of the guy named Richard Dawkins? So he's a hardcore atheist. I think he's from Cambridge. He's a professor, you know, all this different stuff. And he was in a debate, and it was on this debate debate of morality. And basically, they these two sides debated, 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 and it all got boiled down to this. If conscience doesn't exist, then God doesn't exist. If conscience exists, then there must be a higher being. And this is why. If good and evil exist, objective good and objective evil exist across the board, across humanity, then there must be an objective moral law giver. If there's right and there's wrong, then there has to be somebody up here saying, this is right and this is wrong. And because it spans all people and all people groups and all genders and all religions, this is a universal fact that conscience proves good and evil and good and evil prove the existence of a higher being. So if you're an atheist and you say, and someone brings up the conscience, you have one of two choices. 
you deny the conscience and you have destroyed civilization and they know that, or you accept the con- con- conscience and you have to accept God. Because what's the end game for Richard Dawkins? So his conclusion was this. His whole conclusion about the conscience and morality, he basically said this, DNA neither does or doesn't, it just is. We are simply dancing to its music. And translation is, good and evil doesn't exist. We are, we are simply doing. We are just living to our own nature. And so if you deny the conscience, you have to deny good and evil. Because if you see someone raping someone on the street, you can't stop them. Because there's no good and there's no evil. They just are. If someone's breaking into your car or uh, gunning down a bunch of school children, it just is. It's not good, nor is it evil. It just is. So that is atheism taken to its fullest extent. And the, the cross section or the intersection is the conscience. You see, with no conscience, there's no prison. There's no law. There's no right. There's no wrong. There's no society. Everybody is autonomous. Auto means self, and nomos is law. Everybody's self-governed. And a self-governed society is not a society that stands. It cannot. So the conscience exists. Therefore, objective good and objective evil exists. Therefore, the one in whom gave that moral law exists. So to every human being, God says, I'm here. And I'm proving it to you through the conscience. Number two, through creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. And when I was in Nigeria, I didn't mean one atheist. I didn't mean one agnostic. Everybody believed in something. They were spiritual. Maybe it was the God of all creation. Maybe it was the God behind the sun. Maybe it was the God of the jungle. Maybe whatever. But people look at creation since the beginning of time and they say there is an intelligent design behind this. If there was more nitrogen and less oxygen in our air, we would all die. If there was more oxygen in our air and less nitrogen in the air, we would all die. If the earth spun a little closer to the orbited around the sun, a little closer, we'd roast to death. If the sun was a little further away or the earth was a little further away from the sun, we'd all freeze to death. If the moon was just a little further away, the oceans would swallow the land. Everything is absolutely precise. And what's crazy is the more science advances, it proves it. Through the telescope and through the microscope, the fingerprint of God is left. He's everywhere. And creation testifies to this truth. So God reveals, and what does a dying culture do? Verse 21, they reject. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. God says, here I am. And humanity says, no, you're not. And they, they, you know, they do that little Fresh Prince of Bel-Air thing, little, no, you're not. They reject him and they reject him in two ways. 
By not honoring him, that means obedience. And by not giving him thanks, they do not honor him in obedience. They just reject and they go on living their own lives. Why is that? Because this is the fruits of the flesh. Galatians 5, 19, verse through 21. And if you find yourself more in this list than on the spiritual list, then you have some problems. Verse 19, the deeds of the, of the flesh are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, that means uh, my group is better than your group. Republicans are better than Democrats. Democrats are Republican, better than Republicans. Black Lives Matter are better than this group. There are factions. And it goes on and says, uh, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and these of the likes of which I forewarn you just as I have, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So God reveals himself and man rejects in obedience. Remember what the false teachers did? They said that they would not have Jesus as what? What did Jude say? That Jesus would not be their what? Their master and Lord. Remember? They refused to bow the knee to God's demands and God's requirements. They will not bow the knee to those things. They don't honor God. And number two, they do not give thanks. Do you know where not giving thanks stems from? Where would you think at, at the root of it? Like if you reverse engineer it, when a person doesn't give thanks, what's really going on inside their heart? Yeah, they're self-exalting. They're haughty. They're prideful. They are the Nebuchadnezzars of the world that looks at their empire and say, says, look at what these hands have built. A culture that rejects God is a disobedient culture and a prideful culture. That is what Paul is saying. If you want a dead, you examine a dead culture, examine their obedience to the word of God and examine their own pride and their thanksgiving to God. Listen to what Deuteronomy chapter 8 says. Now, this is God speaking to his people, and he's saying, when I take you to the land of promise, make sure you do not do this. And he says, Deuteronomy 8, 17. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and my strength, uh, strength of my own hands have made this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who has given you the power to make wealth, and he may confirm his covenant, which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. And it shall come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you this day, you will surely perish like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you. So you shall perish because you would not listen to the voice of the Lord your God. Two things are happening there, obedience and pride. Obedience and pride. That's the marks of a dying culture. God reveals, the humanity rejects. Then what's the next step? 
Now we know they reject God. What's the next step? Look at verse uh, 22C and or 21C and 22. The next step is they reason God away. They reinvent the truth. When you kick out the author of truth and you're left with the void of truth, then you have to fill that void with something. You have to. You have to fill it with something. And so a, a, a culture that is dying is a God-rejecting culture and one who reinvents the truth. Verse 21, 22. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their own speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. And we look at verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Every time I read that, I think of the college campus. Every time I read that verse, I think of the college campus. It takes me back to being in class and debating the existence of mermaids. It takes me back to, I'm serious, aliens. It takes me, it takes me back. Professing to be wise, they have become fools. And why is that? Because verse 21 says their speculations or what they think is really going on is futile. The Greek word is has no worth. So you go on the college campus and every time you remove God, truth then becomes a theory. We think this is what has happened and it's futile. So the Big Bang Theory Right, You go on campus and they say the world existed. It started because of the Big Bang. And they say there was nothing and then there was something and there was this explosion and then out from that came this universe. There's another theory. You may have heard of a guy named Hawking's. And uh, he has the theory of everything. And he was able to observe within the physical world, within the laws of physics, there is a framework here by which all of physical life exists. And whether it's conventional physics or quantum physics, whether it's big or whether it's small, there's a framework by which all life cogently and coherently exists, but he could not take it the next step further. Then you go to the simulation theory, and this started about 20 years ago, and maybe you've seen the movie The Matrix. And in the movie The Matrix, like simulation theory is essentially we've all taken the red pill. You know, we're given the green or the red, and we say, no, we want the red. We want to stay inside the matrix. And so simulation theory is we are living inside a simulating, a simulation. This is a simulator. This environment has been created. I have been pre-programmed and created, and this world is just simulation. I don't really have a problem with any three of those theories if God's at the center of it. You see, these theories only work. Man's ideas only work if God anchors it all. I think the Big Bang Theory in many ways explains what happened in Genesis 1-1. But when you remove God from it, it falls on nothing. Where did the little something start that mixed together that created this explosion? Right? Nothing can't come or you can't make something from nothingness. When God says, let there be, and it was, that's a big bang. There was nothing God says, and boom, there it is. Science has observed that there's a definite endpoint, 
to our, our beginning point to our universe. As the universe expands, energy is getting weaker, which proves both a start and an end to our universe. That, in my opinion, backs up what Scripture says. Science and God are not exclusive. Science proves the existence of God. And so the Big Bang Theory, I have Big Bang Theory. I have no problem with that if God's at the center of it. I have no go- uh, problem with the everything theory, that there is something holding everything and keeping everything together. What uh, Hawking's described as the framework, I describe as God. In him, we live, we move, and we have our being. In him, life is sustained, not only physical, but spiritual life. See, what Hawking couldn't uh, reason and come to, come to grips with is, where did these natural laws in which I am observing, in which I have created this theory, where did they come from? We just have it, but I don't know the origins. The everything theory makes sense if God is the everything behind it. And the simulation theory, I have no problem believing my environment has been created, I have been created, and I have been programmed like my creator, like my the simulator behind this simulation. I have no problem even thinking that. But God always has to be at the center of everything. When you remove God, you enter into foolish speculations, a darkened heart, and professing to be wise, you have become the fool. And it doesn't mean intellect. The Bible says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's the fool. They profess to be wise, but they're really grabbing at straws. Uh, just one more and we'll move. <laughs> I have so much to say. Trust me. Like I, I, we could be here for literally like five more hours, but I'm not going to do that. No, no, no. I'm not going to do that. Think of the university. <laughs> At least it's the Bible, brother. <laughs> At least it's the Bible. You're not watching Netflix. We're all good. Uh, if you think of the university, the word university means the many within the one. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> it's okay. No worries. If you, if you think of this idea of God anchoring everything together, look at the university. The word university means the many within the one. And if you think of Princeton, if you think of Harvard, if you think of Yale and all these incredible, uh, places of, of education, they all began as Christian seminaries. And they all understood this one truth, that sociology, and anthropology, the study of man, and biology, the study of life, and all these ologies, they all make sense under one umbrella, theology. The study of God makes chemistry, biology, sociology, anthropology, all the studies make sense. He anchors it together. When you kick God off the college campus, the only thing holding the campus together is the mascot in the name. You go on the campus, English department's way down there. Math department's way down there. Science, they're all separated. They're all segregated from each other. 
because God is the one who created it and draws it all together. And in theology, all the other ologies make sense. And that's why these incredible, powerful um, schools all began as seminaries. And they branched out to other forms of intellect and other forms of thinking. My point is God holds it all together. And when you remove God, every theory falls flat. When you take all these secular theories and you put them before God, it makes sense if he's at the center of it all. So they reject God and then they reason him away. He doesn't exist he cannot be known, so on and so forth. Professing to be wise, they become fools. And then here's the last step. Verse 23, they replace God. God reveals, man rejects, God, a man reasons God away, and then man replaces God with something or someone else. Verse 23, and exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and of crawling creatures. Man was created at creation to walk with God. Adam did what in the garden? He walked with God in the cool of the day. Man was created in the image of God to have union with God. When you remove God, that desire and craving to worship remains. You just don't know who you're worshiping. And so in America, you will worship anything or anyone or any ideal. Just look at the, the, the name, the titles and the, the words we use. We call them rock stars, ball, ball player, you know, athlete stars, um, Hollywood stars, and we call them idols. Oh, they're my idol. They're an American idol. What do you do with an idol? You worship an idol. And then you say, well, I'm a fan of. What is, what is a fan, the, the word fan short of? What's the, the word? Fanatic. What is a fanatic? It's a religious zealot. Oh, I'm a fan of the king, LeBron James. I'm a fan of the queen, Beyonce. We go and we, we worship and serve people, athletes, uh, political parties, Hollywood actresses, you know, uh, people on a pulpit, people uh, in front of a classroom at a college campus. We have to worship someone or something. And when we replace God, that someone or something is anything. And that is futile. So God reveals, man rejects, man reasons God away, and then man replaces God. And then verse 24 through 32, we'll just read with very little commentary. Here is where you have a nation, a culture, a person, or a people group who is on the way, exit stage left. Verse 24, therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their own hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonoring among them, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. God says, you don't want to worship me? I'll let you go. And listen, he gives them over to the depravity of their own mind. That's the first step 
of God saying, I am done with a nation. He gives them over to the depravity of what goes on between their two ears. What goes on up here and then where your mind goes, what happens with your body? It follows. It will always follow. And so the mark of a culture that's dying is an immoral mind. Pornography makes more money than the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, MLB, and pro soccer combined. Pornography in America makes more money than CBS, NBC, ABC, and Fox combined. When the mind goes, the depravity of the human body follows. We are living in a culture being judged by God as he gives, takes off his hands from a nation that was once under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Verse 26, when a culture doesn't repent from an immoral mind, God says, okay, the next step of your judgment happens. Verse 26 and 27, for this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. God says the next step in a culture is when they are accepting and proliferating homosexuality. In our culture, we say that's empowerment when someone comes out the closet, God says, no, that's judgment. I am going to let you go to destroy your own bodies. Verse 27 says, in their own persons, the due penalty of their error. You know what that means? That means their own physical bodies will reap the consequence of homosexual activities. Go online to the CDC and Google homosexual males and their propensity for STDs of all sorts and how many male partners the average homosexual has. It's in the hundreds. In the hundreds. God says, I will let you go to violate your own bodies. The mind polluted, the body polluted. Verse 28 through 32, this is the last step on God's judgment before things really fall off the tracks. And it is the defilement of relationships. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. These people are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful, and although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, and here's the kicker, but give heartily approval 
to those who practice them. What Paul says is at the end, there will be a complete breakdown of relationship. In the family, children will be disobedient to their parents. In society, people will be haters of God. They will talk about each other. They'll be gossips. They'll break each other down. Just go on Facebook. It's all there. Verse 20, verse 28 through 32 is on any social media platform. It's there. It's a complete breakdown. And then verse 32 says, and not only are these people who reject God, reason God away, and replace God with some other thing. Not only do they know what they're doing is wrong, but they cheer others on when they do the same. If you're on my team, you're one of us. If you're not on my team, you're dead to us. That's what we call, folks, cancel culture. When you're not on our side, then you no longer exist. Your character's belittled and so on and so forth. We will attack you. That's the last step of a dead culture is when good is heralded as wicked and evil and when evil is heralded as good and right. That's the last step. Folks, welcome to America. This was written 2,000 years ago on a dying people. This is written about the Greeks and the Romans, the same people in which we are following down the same path. But this is my hope, and I'll close with this. We are still allowed in America today to preach the gospel. And the gospel can overpower anything. And that's the hope we hold on to, that God is willing and able to forgive a nation if they call on his name. God is willing to forgive a person if they call on his name. If this country would put God back in the courtroom, put God back in the classroom, if it's people who are called by its name, repent, God will be merciful. God sent Jonah. Jonah didn't even want to go. Jonah was saying, I hope this evangelistic ministry doesn't work out. I hope this outreach fails. I hope no one shows up. He goes there and he says, "Mm, repent. And he leaves. And 600,000 plus people saved. It's the, the, at that time, it was the greatest city in the world. And approximately 600,000 people lived there. And all of a sudden, everybody gets saved. And Jonah's so mad because he says, I knew you were a gracious God. That's my hope. I don't put my hope in a president. I don't put my hope in a political party. I put my hope in the king. And he, his name is not LBJ, amen? His name is JC, Jesus the Christ. Let's pray. <laughs> Next week, we'll talk about how we overcome this stuff. Father, we just uh, thank you for this uh, enlightening passage of scripture. Um, I know, God, that we didn't even scratch the surface on this text. We didn't even really scratch the surface on this a subject, but you have made it evident to us, God, that when a culture rejects your revelation, they reason you out of the way and they replace you with something else. Our conscience, our family, our government, and our church is affected to the point where they may not even stand. And so, Father, you have not called us to be Americans. You've called us to be Christians. Lord, may we 
reach out to a lost and dying people. May we not be afraid to speak the truth. Father, I just pray that you would give us a spirit in which we would have a zeal and be fanatic for Jesus Christ. I pray, God, we would call people to repentance. And I pray, God, that you would save this nation from sea to shining sea. I I pray for revival. I pray that this is a speed bump and a very long and, and a great journey for America. God, but I know that your scripture is true, and I know, God, that this culture is in decline. And I know without repentance, without your grace, and without your mercy, we are done. And so, Lord God, may we be the voice crying out in the wilderness. May we be the voice heralding people to repentance. May we be the voice bringing people to our King. And God, may you equip us to be mighty in the name that is above every name, in the name by which every knee will bow, in the name at which heaven and earth and those under the earth will confess that Jesus is Lord and God to the glory of God our Father. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. And that is the end of this week's podcast. We thank you for joining us for another inspiring message. If you enjoyed this teaching, please take a moment and share it with others. If you're interested and would like to find out more information about our location, time of worship service, or even what ministries we offer, we encourage you to visit our Facebook page at Journey Community Church Fontana, where you can find all that information and more. Again, on behalf of Journey Community Church of Fontana, we thank you for tuning in. Have a blessed week, and we'll see you here next time.